At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared. Before we go to this week's episode, a gentle reminder of our special offer for all of our listeners on our new subscription service, Intelligence Squared Plus. Yes, you don't have to live in London anymore to take part and vote in our live debates and discussions. You can join us online on our new service at intelligencesquared.com slash plus. We've been holding some fantastic debates and discussions already, from whether Iran is an enemy of the West to whether there's such thing as a male and female brain. So if you'd like to join us, we have a lot of events coming up over the next few weeks from whether cancel culture is threatening our freedoms to a conversation with the writer Anne Applebaum on whether politics has failed and we are being seduced by autocracy instead. So if you'd like to join us for all these discussions and many, many more, please go to intelligencesquared.com slash plus and use the promo code podcast. P-O-D-C-A-S-T at the checkout and join us as we delve into some of the most important and pressing issues facing our world. And on this week's episode, we were joined by Lord Andrew Adonis to discuss his new book, Labour's Churchill, about Ernest Bevan, who he argues is one of the great political heroes forgotten in British history. And he spoke to former Prime Minister Tony Blair in a rare public appearance to discuss Bevan's legacy and what it might be able to teach us today about the left gaining power, as well as patriotism, nationalism and identity politics. It's a really fascinating conversation, and it was chaired by the BBC's Regini Vadianathan. Well, welcome again to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with Tony Blair and Andrew Adonis, and in many ways with Ernest Bevin as well, because we're going to be discussing his life, the life of a Labour politician in the next 45 minutes or so. This is the book we're going to be discussing, Ernest Bevin, Labour's Churchill. Uh, just once again, introduce uh, the two guests who are joining me course, both don't really need an introduction. Former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, who now runs the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, and Lord Andrew Adonis, who served under Tony Blair and uh, was in government for 12 years, but of course is uh, speaking to us in his capacity as an author. So once again, I'll just uh, hold the book up there, Ernest Bevan, Labour's Churchill. I'll start with you, Mr Blair. There's a quote that's in the book that says, 
to understand modern Britain, warts and all, you need to understand Ernest Bevan. Now, I purposely haven't actually outlined anything about his life. Let's just start by getting your take on that quote. Why should we be discussing the life of this particular politician today? Thanks, Virginia. And uh, thanks, Andrew. Welcome, everyone. First of all, let me say, by the way, the book is absolutely brilliant and really easy to read, really enjoyable and incredibly informative. So I'm, I'm giving a big plug straight away. It really is. It's a, and, and for anyone who's a student of Labour history, definitely read it because he was a, a giant of the Labour movement, trade union movement first, and then obviously of the Labour Party and Labour government. Um, why should we you know, regard him as, as essential to understanding modern Britain? Well, because he, he, in many ways, he was the embodiment of the sort of concepts underpinning the, that successful Labour government from 1945 to 51. He was the foreign secretary who was absolutely instrumental in creating the transatlantic relationship with the US and NATO, the United Nations. He was one of the really interesting parts of the book was the imagination he brought to bear on how Germany rebuilt itself after the war in a, in a fair way, the Marshall Plan. So he had a big immediate impact on, on um, Britain and Britain's post-war history, but also, frankly, his, his contribution to the war effort and to through the war effort, because people often misunderstand this, the Labour Party was in government in the Second World War. I mean, it won an election and became the government after the 1945 election. But all the way through the war, it was, of course, part of the coalition government. And Bevin was, you know, integral to the war effort and to creating the conditions in which when the Labour government came with its programme in 1945, it was in many ways a continuation of, of the things that had been built up um, in that coalition government. And, you know, one of the things I was reflecting as I was reading Andrew's book, and you read how he just organised the war effort. I mean, he really mobilised Labour in support, I mean, Labour working people in support of the war effort. You just kind of think, if he was around in the COVID crisis today, I mean, he would have gripped this thing and absolutely, you know, organised it in a, in a spectacular way. And, you know, there are many things that stand out about early Bevan, which we, we will discuss. But for me, one of the most powerful things about him is this incredible combination of practical vision and organizational weight. I mean, that is that that was the defining feature of him. He was a someone, by the way, with a stupendous intellect, even though he'd had to educate himself a lot of the time, fascinated by ideas, early backer of Keynes, for example, you know, really a, a, a visionary, but in a very practical way and with this incredible capacity for hard work and organization. So, yeah, no, he, he was, you know, probably, in the end, probably the most significant member of that Labour government, you know, along with Attlee and probably equal with Attlee. Thank you, uh, Mr Blair. For those who don't know a huge amount about um, Ernest Bevan, Andrew Adonis, you know, there's three main chunks of his life that stood out from the book. The fact that he set up the Transport and General Workers Union and had a huge influence on the union movement. Uh, also, as uh, Mr Blair referred to there, his contribution to Churchill's wartime cabinet as Minister for Labour. And then when he went on to become Labour 
Foreign Secretary when the Labour Party were in government. Lots of strands to his life, but he's, as you yourself have said, not that well-known a figure. In fact, sometimes people confuse him with Nye Bevan, um, who is far better known in the Labour movement. So what inspired you to write a book to chronicle his life? Thanks, Virginia. Can I first of all thank you for hosting this and thank the brilliant Intelligence Square team for putting all the organisation together and thank Tony for those those uh, very kind words, I can assure you, uh, praise from uh, uh, Tony, is, uh, if you've done my job for him in the past, is uh, a, 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 extremely precious. So I'm, uh, it's very, very kind of him uh, to say that. It's an amazing personal story, Ernie Bevin, and uh, all great lives are great stories. You know, in many ways, history is, uh, is one life after another. And there are very, very few people who've held high office in Britain who had a more extraordinary life than Ernie Bevin. An illiterate Somerset labourer's family... Uh, his mum died when he was eight. He never knew who his uh, dad was. Farmed out to different relations. Has a big bust up with uh, the local farmer who he's working for as a, as a farm boy, which he absolutely hates. Leaves to go to Bristol, which is the great uh, city of the southwest, with nothing more than the addresses of his brothers, who are 20 years older. One's a, one works in a butcher's shop, the other works in a bakery. And he makes his way up from there to becoming... A lay preacher, which is, you know, Labour owes more to Methodism than to Marxism. Never was that more true than Ernie Bevin, who learnt to preach and uh, to harangue, actually, in a, in a way that was uh, very common in, in the early 20th century, a, a great Methodist. And from that, came in touch with the local socialists because of big industrial disputes in Bristol before the First World War, in particular, a big port strike where he became set up. He didn't, everything that Ernie did, he essentially created, he created because he was a drayman, had his own horse and cart. He created the Carter's Division of the Dockers' Union in Bristol, which then, in due course, by a whole series of further acts of creation on his part, particularly after the First World War, when there was big, big industrial ferment, became the Transport and General Workers' Union. So it's an amazing story, in many ways a, a, an, as extraordinary a story as Winston Churchill's, but in terms of the social story, right from the bottom of society, right to the top even more dramatic. And it's from there that he then becomes the linchpin of the Labour organisation in the general strike. But he's always a pragmatist. One of his first biographers, a guy called Francis Williams, who was uh, uh, Attlee's alter ego, very close to Attlee, when he wrote his first life of Bevin, he said that in this crucial moment after the Russian Revolution, with the big collapse of societies after the First World War, uh, Spanish flu, which wrought havoc on a, on a scale of, of coronavirus today and so on, that Ernie Bevin could have been Britain's Stalin. He had all of the force of personality. He was a huge bulky figure. He was an organisational genius. He could have been, except he was a Democrat, not a dictator. And it's that that Attlee spotted in the 30s, which is why their partnership came to be so close. And it's this Attlee-Bevin partnership which is absolutely at the centre of the British state, both in the Second World War, in the coalition with Churchill, and the Labour figure that Churchill most wants in the war is Ernie Bevan, because he can mobilise the working class and the trade unions. And then, as Tony said, after 1945, when he's foreign secretary. And looking back at his career and his importance in the Labour movement, it's very clear to me that when you look back at that 1945 Labour government, the two greatest achievements are the NHS, which is Anna in Bevan, and NATO, which is 
Ernie Bevin, and we should be celebrating both of them because it was it was safeguarding the security of Britain as well as creating the welfare state that was absolutely at the heart of the success of that government. He was a great patriot, Bevin, and it's vitally important as we look back on Labour history that we see that it's the combination of Bevin and Bevan that is vital to the success of Labour, and we need that same combination today. Thank you, Andrew. Let's just go back to some of his early years when he started the Transport General Workers' Union. There's a quote that stood out, uh, many quotes that stood out in the book, but this one uh, relating to that, you described him as the Picasso of 20th century trade union power. Andrew, I'd like to bring Mr Blair uh, back into the discussion. Uh, you had associations early on in your political career with the TGWU. And of course, union, the relationship between the Labour Party and the unions changed under your tenure. So what do you think Ernie Bevin contributed to the trade union movement and the Labour Party as it is today? Well, he built the Transport and General Workers Union, which at the time, by the way, was the largest, I think, Andrew Ryan saying the largest trade union in the world. And at least in the free world. And he he was a really practical person. I mean, he would today, I think, be all over the informal or the gig economy. He'd be all over that. He'd be trying to work out what are the ways that you, you helped people in that situation. But he was utterly practical and, you know, and a towering figure because of his because of the quality of his thinking but also the fact that he was just so ruthlessly practical and you know he never you know he never really had any truck with people who who weren't prepared to be practical in pursuit of of of, of victory because he knew that winning was important to doing and and the the thing that's really interesting about Ernie Bevan, and why I always think in the Labour Party, because Bevan's always been one of my heroes. I mean, I'm more with the Bevan than the Bevan, although I agree you need both. But the reason I always think it's it's a problem for the Labour Party that underestimates the Bevan part of its history is that that guy wanted to win. I mean, you know, he wanted to build a successful trade union to protect people's rights. And then he fought for those rights all the way through. And even during the war years, he was fighting for them. And he was a big part of the beverage reforms. He was a big part of the white paper, 1944 white paper on unemployment, you know, all the way through. And then, of course, the Labour victory, he was determined that Labour was going to win. And one of the reasons why he was so keen on on Labour being in a coalition government with the Conservatives during the war, which is, you know, some of the left of the party were extremely unhappy about that was because he knew that if it showed its worth at this time of huge national peril, then afterwards it was going to be in a strong, I mean, he did it because he believed in it, but he also realised that afterwards then the Labour Party was going to be in a much more trusted position to govern. Now, I don't think he thought, as most people didn't think, that Labour was then going to win a landslide victory in 1945. But he thought that by doing this, it was going to be enough for the Labour Party to be trusted with the reins of government because it had showed that it could be given that trust during the course of the war years. So I think it's a it's such an important thing, this, because on the progressive side of politics, we just often miss that absolutely essential, practical 
determination to deal with the world as it is. And one of the reasons why he was always very dismissive, not of intellectuals, by the way, but, but of intellectuals who had utopian and unrealistic views of what the left could achieve. One of the reasons for that was because having been from his background, he knew the only thing that worked through, it, through what he did as a trade unionist was achieving your aim. He wasn't interested in glorious defeats. He was only interested in practical victories. Thank you. Uh, just picking up from what Mr. Blair said, uh, Andrew Adonis, moving on and him being a politician who wanted results. I mean, the book's called Labour's Churchill and Ernie Bevan won huge admiration from Winston Churchill. Why do you think that was? Ernie Bevan was at Churchill's right hand during the war and Churchill was self-aware enough to know the bits he didn't reach. He was a great military strategist. That's what he basically spent his life doing, doing military strategy. But he wasn't trusted by the working classes at all. On the contrary, it was Churchill who was on the other side in the general strike and who'd been sent troops into Tony Pandy in the big industrial disputes before the First World War and so on. So there was no love of Churchill on the Labour side. There was a respect for Churchill because he'd been right on Hitler in the late 1930s, and both Attlee and uh, and uh, Bevin had respect for Churchill. Indeed, Bevin is even more hardline on the dictators in the 1930s than Churchill is, because Churchill, unfortunately, has a soft spot for people who he meets, dictators who he meets. And he'd met Mussolini, and he and Mussolini got on fine, whereas one of Bevin's great attributes is he was uh, never seduced by the charisma of others. Uh, he uh, had no time for any of the dictators in the 1930s. And when he first meets Stalin at the Potsdam Conference in July 1945, when they literally turn up, he and Attlee, because the general election is in the middle of the Potsdam Conference, and they turn up and the conference is two-thirds of the way through and most of the deals have already been done, uh, Bevin starts shouting at Stalin in one of the key sessions that he's not having what Stalin wants, which is riding roughshod over all the arrangements for reparations in West Germany and so on, and demands it's all written down. And he says to the American Secretary of State afterwards, I'm used to dealing with people like him because I had them in the Communists and the Transport and General Workers Union for the last 20 years. So he really brought this practical experience of dealing with the far left, which was very undemocratic. You know, the Communists were, they didn't believe in elections or, or party democracy or anything like that. Dealing with them in a very practical way, because what he was involved with was wage negotiations and trying to get a better deal, was hugely important to him in then applying those lessons in the war to mobilise the working classes and the trade unions and to organise. He was a brilliant organiser. And then as Foreign Secretary after 1945. You say in your book that he turned the working class into a political force and turned Labour into a governing party. Mr Blair, that's what you did. What would you say today's Labour Party could learn from Ernie Bevan? I think it could learn one very obvious thing and then one less obvious thing. The obvious thing it could learn is the need to focus on, on winning. He was not the slightest bit interested, Ernie Bevan, in, in, in sort of righteous opposition. Had no time for that at all. The, the less surprising thing is that, you know, at the time, you could get people like... Ernie Bevan, and you probably still can, but it's less nowadays, I think, you know, who were, because of their social circumstances, brought up with absolutely nothing, but were in fact natural intellects and, and leaders. And I think one of the great things about 
Ernie Bevan was that he made real attempts to understand modern industry, the way it worked. He he was, of course, representing the the workforce, but you know he he had a, a great intellectual curiosity. I mean, the friendship with Keynes, which Andrew goes through in the book, you know, is, is an interesting friendship. They were in touch with each other very, very clearly over the question of unemployment. He backed Keynes's idea that you had to invest to reduce unemployment rather than cut. You know, he, he very early on was part of that and part of that intellectual movement. And I think the thing that the Labour Party can learn from him today, therefore, is also I, I feel with someone like Ernie Bevan, you know, you've always got to be careful. You don't put your own thoughts into his mind. But I feel he would have been fascinated by what's happening with technology today and the difference it made to people's lives and how you made sure that the benefits of the technology revolution were brought to the broadest number of people as possible. I think he would have been so the unsurpri- that the, the unsurprising thing is the determination to win. The more surprising quality is you have to understand the world the way the world the way the world's changing in order to be able to change it productively. Andrew, what was uh, your thoughts on that as well? What do you think he could give to today's party? Well, there are some obvious lessons, and then there are some which are, I think are, are more problematic for us in, in the Labour Party. The obvious ones are: Labour will never be trusted unless it's a patriotic party. It, the first biography of Ernie was called Bevin of Britain. You know, when he made the decision without Lee that we needed to have the nuclear deterrent, and the reason we did was we had to show Stalin that we really, really meant business and we weren't going to let him rampage over, over Western Europe. He famously comes into the cabinet meeting that's discussing it and saying, we've got to have this thing and we've got to have the Union Jack on top of it. He really understood the importance of Labour being trusted on defence, being patriotic. Indeed, part of the reason I, I called him Labour's Churchill is that he was an imperialist. For my taste, he was too much of an imperialist. When I was doing a podcast like this last week with Alan Johnson, who could have been the modern Bevin in some ways, a great trade union leader, we had this discussion about whether or not Ernie was too imperialistic. To my huge surprise, because I'm not normally outbid on these things, it was Alan who was saying that you need to excuse more of Ernie's imperialism because this was the 1940s and Britain was a great imperial power. So all of that he understood. And the first key lesson which Labour always needs to learn is if it can't be trusted with defence, it can't be trusted with foreign policy. It will never win elections. The bit where I actually changed my mind when I was writing the book is that it's undoubtedly true that part of the reason why Attlee and Churchill do so well in the 1940s and why Labour wins in 1945 is because of the trade unions being mobilised in a really big way behind the Labour Party. And the big question I found myself asking is why have we not produced any more Bevins since 1951, at the time, people thought that Bevin was going to be the first of his kind. In fact, he's been the first and the last. Tony never really, I mean, John Prescott did have a trade union background, but he, he wasn't a, a serving and big trade union leader like Ernie Bevin. And a sort of interesting question for, for Tony is, does he think we would have been better off in our period in government and now if we could generate a Bevin-type figure. And when people say, well, maybe the time has passed for that, I was very struck in writing the book. If you look at other countries which have got really strong social democratic traditions of government, their unions have been at the heart of their social democratic parties. Sweden, where the social democrats have won every election 
in the last century. Every election, they haven't always been in government because sometimes the others have ganged up against them, but they've always won the elections. Their serving prime minister at the moment, Stefan Löwen, set up a trade union 30 years ago, just like Ernie Bevin, and was then parachuted into parliament. Half of the prime ministers of Australia in the last century have been serious trade unionists. You know, Bob Hawke was a trade unionist. Tony knows Australia well. So his reflections on the unions and Labour and how you can have a modern relationship which isn't lowest common denominator but gets the best out of both of them, I think is a really big question for the Labour Party. Mr Black, would you want to answer that? Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And, you know, it goes back to something I wrestled with a lot when I was the leader of the Labour Party and still think a lot about today because... You know, to be very frank, I found with my own relationship with the trade union movement, you know, people always thought I was wanting to distance Labour from trade unions and, you know, very sceptical about them, thinking that the public would not tolerate a close relationship. And I always used to say, no, I'm I'm, I'm not anti-union. I just want a union movement that is geared to the modern world. And my anxiety was that the leadership I was dealing with were essentially amalgamating their unions and going, you know, in fact, as industry changed and new types of business arose, were becoming slewed really towards the public sector and more or less getting out of the private sector. So very little of today's private sector is unionized. And I used to have this constant discussion where I was saying, look, you've got to, you've got to ask yourself the question, why is this happening in circumstances where there's still massive job insecurity? And in fact, the only private sector union in my time that really put on members was, was Asdor, the shop workers union, who were often the more marginalized politically by the other union figures. And yet I used to say, but they're the ones who are in the private sector and actually putting on members. And I think what, what was missing, and the question I, I always think is, could this come back? And potentially it could, but you need to produce big figures like Bevan to do it. Could you get to a situation where you got a modern trade union leadership that understood that its job is to sort of provide for people in this period of insecurity, but they have to do so in a way that is is respectful of the difference between the political leadership and the union leadership. And they have to do it in a way that coincides with people's needs in, in, in this new and different type of economy. And, you know, I, I think, yeah, the Labour Party definitely would be stronger if that trade union movement, not just in the public sector, but in the private sector, was, as it were, at the cutting edge of what is happening for the future. And, and, well, at the moment, I'm not sure that, that that can be done. I mean, to be absolutely blunt about it, you know, Ernie Bevan and Len McCluskey is a kind of summation of what the the issue is today. I mean, Bevan, you see, Bevan would have, Bevan would have always represented the interests of the workforce, but he would never have tried to take the policymaking of the government over and... He, he would have never indulged in the sort of ultra-leftism that's come to characterise some bits of the union movement. You just have nothing to do with that, whatever. And the truth of the matter is, as I say, he was a towering intellect. So it, it's, 
No, it's it's a really interesting question because I think yes, the trade union movement, if it were prepared to embrace far-reaching change, could play a big part again, and it would be helpful for the Labour Party if it did it. But I'm just being very honest in my view, if it's not prepared to do that, then the Labour government or the Labour Party has got to be clear it governs in the interest of the whole country, not of a section of the country. And that's, you know, this is this is a continuing difficulty, I think, for Labour leaders. Thank you. Just before we go to Q&A, Andrew Adonis, I want to ask you one more quick question. Obviously, when we look back at uh, the lives of political figures, we know that they're not perfect. We spend a lot of time talking about the triumphs of Ernie Bevan, but you also do talk about many of his flaws in the book, um, including his views towards women. And um, you researched his anti-Semitic views. Uh, could you just explain a little bit about that just before we move on? Yeah, Ernie wasn't great on the role of women in society, equal pay and, and so on. He had a, a very traditional working class view of the relationship between the sexes, even though actually Flo, his wife, and it's a really interesting relationship between him and Flo, they met as young socialists. So it wasn't he was unaware of these issues. It's just that he, he very much fitted into a groove. The bit that I found most depressing about his life, I'll be completely frank, is that there's a, a, a continuing and deep strand of anti-Semitism. And that definitely plays a part in one of the biggest mistakes of the 1945 Labour government, which is not moving as it should have done to creating the State of Israel and having what was then on offer a two-state solution. It could have been negotiated then, indeed, Britain was the colonial power, essentially, in Palestine, and it could, with the United States and the new United Nations, have imposed it. Instead, what Ernie does, and it's, a, it's, a, 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 it's, a, it's not a great uh, chapter in British history at all, is that Britain simply gives up its role in Palestine. It just gives up. It literally walks out which then leads to what's essentially a, a war in the Palestinian territory. And that leads in due course to the formation of the state of Israel. And Britain had clear responsibilities. Now, it's not absolutely clear to me how far Ernie was motivated by anti-Semitism. They did make quite a lot of anti-Semitic remarks. And how far it was because he was an imperialist. And what he really wanted was Britain to remain the dominant power in the Middle East. It's a very complicated and difficult story. But what when you look at the great thing that that Labour government got right in terms of imperialism, which is Attlee's really courageous decision to set a date for Britain getting out of India and then negotiated for it. And it was obviously difficult and it led to a lot of bloodshed and so on, but almost every other course would have been worse. And compare that with what happened in Palestine. It's definitely uh, the worst chapter in Ernie's career. Okay, well, just uh, now that we've... uh noted that. Let's uh, open the floor to questions. First of all, it's great to have so many of you with us. We have about 580 people watching on this live stream. So thanks to all of you for for joining us. And if you do want to submit a question, you can send uh, one into the box. Uh, The first one we've got is from Glenn Barnum, and it's actually quite relevant to what we were both, or all of us, I should say, were discussing a few minutes ago. And start with you, Mr. Blair. It said, where are the Ernie Bevins of today? And is there anyone you could say in current politics might have shadows of Ernie Bevin? And it's not an easy one. The audience questions are always the hardest. <laughs> so in, my, in my government, I, I could point to people who had elements of that. You know, Alan Johnson, that Andrew was talking about, extraordinary figure, really capable person. John Reed, be someone else who, who might fit that. 
John Prescott had one of the qualities that, that Ernie had, which was an ability to go and stand up uh, when the going got tough. And, you know, one of the really great things about the book is, is, is reading how on several occasions, either for Attlee or for Churchill, Bevan would swim against the tide and actually turn the tide by, by remarkable speeches. So I don't know, but today when I'm looking at it, I don't know, Andrew, what would you, what would you say? Well, what I'm going to do, which is the, the classic politician's trick, is answer a different question. I think I can see who today's Attlee might be. Keir Starmer has a lot of the Clement Attlee about him. Uh, a really serious lawyer, which is what Clem was, good at uniting, bringing people together, good at talent spotting and so on. And to turn it round, looking at where Labour needs to go next, I think if, uh, if Keir could find his Bevin, then he would really have a team that could motor. And I think it's a challenge. Part of the reason why I wrote the book is that uh, Ernie always referred to the Labour movement and he regarded it as a massive social movement. He also, by the way, in his later life, after his initial, you know, because he, he went through a, a left-wing period, as everyone does when they were young and so on. I think even Tony had some slight left-wing dances. I mean, people go through that phase. But he, after the general strike, which was a huge catastrophe, which he hadn't caused, that was caused by essentially communists in the miners' union. And he picked up the threads of it during it and actually was really important to bringing it to an early conclusion, but for which things could have been really terrible. After that, Ernie starts calling himself an industrialist. He never sees a them and us society at all. He sees the trade unions and the organised working class as a pillar of the state, but an equal pillar of the state. He's always engaged in talks with uh, the big business leaders and the big civil servants. And what he wants to do is to bring about partnership, the language which Tony did so much to forge in the, in the, in the 1980s, 90s and, and in his government, of partnership between uh, all of those people who are, who are making a productive economy and so on. That was Ernie Bevin's language too. So I can see what themes the Ernie Bevin uh, of today would be taking up. I can see, I think, possibly who the Clem Attlee is. I can't actually name for you at the moment, though, who Ernest Bevin circa 2020 is. OK, let's go to the next question from Ying Jin, who asks, now that we have more and more of a gig economy, gig economy, what do the two speakers think of how Bevin's pragmatism would help to represent the interests of these new types of workers? Quite a relevant question, given uh, what we're going through right now with COVID as well. Uh, start with you, Mr. Blair. Yeah, you see, so I think what, what Ernie Bevin would have recognised is that some people want flexibility in their working so it's not that everyone, everything in the gig economy is bad. He, he wouldn't have seen it like that at all. He would have thought, well, you know, if, if, if for example, people prefer to work in, in that more flexible way, they should be able to do so. But what he would have been doing is trying to make sure that they had an underpinning of employment security and rights that supported them through it. So I think, you see, he would have seen as a trade unionist, he would have seen enormous opportunity there and and would have realized that, you know, for example, if Ernie Bevel was around, there's no way the Chancellor would have announced all of that stuff yesterday, you know, a lot of which is perfectly good in terms of its support for people. Somehow he would have been in the middle of that mix, even with a Conservative government. He would have been saying, yeah, but here's what we need out of this package. And so I think he, you know, he, he was a very imaginative person. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the book is, you know, as, as Andrew says, I mean, 
The creation of the Transport and General Workers Union, which was his creation, I mean, that is a classic personal intervention making history. I mean, without Ernie Bevan, I doubt the union would ever really come into being. There was no particular reason other than him pushing it by the, the sort of people who were the carters, as it were, hauling things, came together with the dockers and then, you know, got together in this large union and then it was built in that way. You know, so that's what he would have been doing today. He would have been supremely fixated on understanding the insecurities of the modern workforce and trying to work out the best way of building that infrastructure support underneath them through a, a vibrant union representation. And he would have been making sure that in doing that, he wasn't frightening the employers he was dealing with, but he was working in partnership with them, but making them understand that if they wanted a long-term committed workforce, they had to treat it fairly. Um, Andrew, I'm going to bring in the next question because we've only got about uh, five minutes left. Patricia Roma asks, how would Ernest Bevan have handled Brexit? Well, it's a really interesting question, that, because, of course, the European Union starts under Ernie Bevin. The European Coal and Steel Community, which is before the Common Market and then the European Union, is as a result of the Schuman Plan, which is in the last year of Ernie Bevin's Foreign Secretaryship. And I'm quite frank in the book about how Ernie and Clem Attlee were against it. Uh, as Ernie famously says, the Durham miners won't wear it, which is the reason why he won't do it. Uh, when I get into it, there are contingent reasons. Labour had just nationalised uh, the, uh, the coal industry, which was in, very much in reaction to this terrible industrial relations that there had been in the previous 30 years, which wasn't just the unions, though there had been a big problem with the unions, it was also the coal owners who behaved appallingly in the 1920s and 30s. And there was a real fear that having a supranational body would, wouldn't be compatible with a, a nationalised industry here in Britain. But I'm, I'm frank in the book too about the fact that Ernie and Clem Attlee weren't keen on federal European uh, institutions. Britain had won the war. They looked at France, uh, the new Germany, Italy and so on. And these, of course, weren't countries which had any strong democratic traditions. And their concern was that uh, this would be lowest common denominator and you needed a strong democratic Britain, which could be the arbiter of Europe. But my argument in the book isn't so much about what his position was in 1950-51, but the arch-pragmatist in Bevin, who was also a really firm internationalist, is it conceivable that 30 years later he would have been in favour of withdrawing? I don't for a moment think so. I think 30 years later he would have been in the heart of it, and now, 70 years later, he would have uh, fought tooth and nail against, uh, against Brexit. Now, you, you know, you can never... Uh, put political views um, in, 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 in the... Uh, you can never associate them with people who are no longer with us. But if you just look at his abiding principles that he followed in his life, there were good reasons why he was cautious about the European coal and steel community in 1950-51, but I think he would have been at the heart of this European project uh, now in the, in the 2020s. OK, thank you. Uh, next question comes from Guinevere Glassford. I'm going to uh, put that one to you, uh, Mr Blair. Uh, she says or asks, what would Bevin make of today's identity politics? Guinevere says the left feels very fractured politically. Is there anything the left can learn from Bevin in terms of how the Labour movement can unite? Yes, I, I think there is. And I think he, I mean, it's such a different form of politics to what he was dealing with at the time. But 
I think, first of all, as Andrew was saying earlier, he understood the absolute necessity of the Labour Party being seen to be patriotic and and strong in defence of, of the country and of liberty. And I think his basic, you know, he, he was... The interesting thing is, why did he become so fiercely anti-communist? And as Andrew says, he was actually ahead of virtually everyone in denouncing Hitler and Mussolini and fascism. And I think it's because he had a very strong, ingrained sense of, of justice. And one of the things he, he used to say is, you know, people want to live their lives. They want to be free to live their lives in their own way. They don't want the secret police. I think he actually made that a speech around that at a certain point when he was slapping down in the House of Commons an MP from the far left. And he he, he went into a very forceful defense of, of liberty. So I kind of think where he would have been today, I mean, I think, is that he would have been strongly in favor of, you know, he, he was a product of his time. But if he was a product of this time, I think he would have been strongly in favor of equality and social justice. But he would have been resolutely against any form of, of, of sort of turning identity politics into a badge of division. You know, he was a he was a unifier in in his life and in the way he tried to bring the country together in in the war and after the war. So I I, I feel that he would have been someone, if he was around today, that would would have been building a big coalition. You know, again, I go back to the relationship with Keynes and Beveridge. He did not see them as enemies. He saw them as supportive of the basic social vision of the Britain of the future. Okay, thank you. We've got time for one more quick question, which I'll put to both of you. It comes from Richard Smith, who says or asks, why is Bevin not better known? Is it something to do with Labour having a bad relationship with its former leaders? Mr Blair, very quickly, and then Andrew Adonis, if you want to pick up, and uh, we can uh, round off with any final thoughts you have as well about the book. Yeah, no, it's it's the, 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 the reason is because... The Labour Party, one of the great things about it, but also it can be a weakness, is its romantic attachment to, to the figures that will tell it what it wants to hear and its discomfort with people like Bevan who would stand up and tell them not what they wanted to hear, but what was necessary to win. And, yeah, no, he, he, that, that is the Bevan Bevin, the yin and yang of the Labour Party, it, you know, the most important thing is that we realise both are important. And that head and heart is, you know, without the heart, there's no point in being in politics. But without the head, you're not going to get anything done. And that combination is definitely what Bevan represented. And I think one of the great things about this book, and I really do hope this happens, is the revival of Bevan as a great Labour figure and as a symbol of what is necessary if you want to govern. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Andrew Adonis, your thoughts on that and any other closing thoughts you want to make about the book as well? Well, he was unlucky because uh, Bevin and Bevan are separated only by one letter and so he got confused. A lot of people, I was very struck when I was writing the book and talking to, to people, a lot of people thought they were the same person. 
It's really interesting. They've all heard of, Be- of Bevan and they think Bevan is the same person or they didn't know about him at all. If you go on Wikipedia, under Ernest Bevan, it says not to be confused with Anarin Bevan. So, I mean, it goes deep, deep in the psyche. But as Tony has just said, there's also things to do with the Labour Party as to why it's not remembered properly. Labour isn't great at celebrating its former leaders of any kind, actually. I mean, you know, it's not great about its more recent leaders, but this great love affair that Labour now has with Clem Attlee is quite recent. All the way through the 50s and 60s, Clem was being denounced by the left of the Labour Party because of the great betrayal, particularly... Uh, the setting up of NATO, the taking on of, uh, of, of Stalin the in, in, uh, and the introduction of, of some minor charges inside the NHS and so on. So the betrayal narrative, unfortunately, goes really deep inside the Labour Party and it basically extends to anyone who's held senior office inside a Labour government, unless by rose-tinted glasses. It's so long ago that people don't actually pay close attention to what they've done. But the, the, the good news is, though, is that we are now constantly reassessing. And the reason I wrote the book is that after the really pretty terrible experience that we've had in the Labour Party and the trade union movement over the last decade, people want to start winning again. And when people want to start winning again, they're more honest at looking back at the history. And we need to look back at the history of recent Labour governments, but we also need to have a much better take on the 1945 Labour government. It was this combination of the NHS and NATO which underpinned the success of that government. And also the importance of these people working together. Attlee, Clem, Clem Attlee, Bevin, Bevan, they worked extremely closely together. They were, until the very end of the government, when... Uh, when things start to fall apart a bit, partly because Bevin dies. They were a very, very close-knit team, and you can't do anything in politics unless you can work with people. So there were big lessons from it. It was said of Ernie Bevin that the uh, when he arrived as Foreign Secretary in the Foreign Office that the only two posts he could have held in the building were Foreign Secretary and Doorkeeper. So he is an amazing personal story too. And uh, I hope that people will buy the book for the story and what it says about, you know, social mobility and your ability to get on in this country. Now, I hope young people will buy it and say that, you know, you can do anything in this country. We're a great democracy. We're an open society. Nobody stood for those values more strongly than Ernie Bevin. But also you can achieve great things in politics too. And in the Labour Party, we've got a duty to make the sum more than the parts. Thank you so much, Andrew Adonis. Well, if you haven't learned anything else about uh, Ernie Bevan in the last 45 minutes, then you know he's not nigh Bevan at the very least. Thank you very much to Tony Blair and to Andrew Adonis for this conversation. And to all of you, more than 500 of you who are still with us in this discussion, um, it will be posted up on the Intelligence Squared Plus Twitter handle so you can watch it back as well. And thanks to all of you for your questions as well. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. 
And we also use our cutting edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.